Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a four-week teaching series during Advent called Waiting for the World to Change. Together, we're learning how we can wait differently because God is renewing all things. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Wow, that was terrible. Let's try that again. If you're greeting one another, why can't you greet me? Good morning. Well done. How are your Christmas preparations going 17 days before the big day? Going well? Our family was away over Thanksgiving visiting some of our uh, other family, and it was fun to come back into our neighborhood and see everybody put up their lights over the Thanksgiving weekend, which is when you're supposed to do it, unlike Camden, our middle school director, who does it the day after, th- or the day after Halloween, which is just wrong. <laughs> now, of course, there's other things you're probably preparing for as Christmas approaches. You got to bake the cookies, you got to buy the presents, you got to wrap the presents, you got to set the tables. There's a lot of preparation that goes into making. Christmas. Now that's not just true for us today, that was also true for the people who were waiting for the first Christmas as well. And listen, they weren't just preparing in order to celebrate a nice holiday, they were preparing themselves for the arrival of the Messiah. You see, they lived in a world full of chaos and war and anger and bondage and apathy and sin, and they were looking for God to do something. Or as the title of this series suggests, they were waiting for the world to change. And at the first Christmas, the thing we remember on December 25th, change it did. Perhaps, though, not in the way that they thought it would. And friends, I believe as the Church of Christ today, we find ourselves in a similar place. How can we not be looking at our current world? How can you not turn on the TV and watch the news and yearn and hope and wait for the world to change? We see war and anger and apathy and injustices every single day across our TV screens. And we know deep down this is not how it's supposed to be. And so we cry out, oh Lord, how long? Until you come and restore the world how you intended it to be. And this really, as Chuck already mentioned, is what Advent is really all about. Last week, we learned Advent just means coming or arrival. And as followers of Jesus, as we think about this season of Advent, we do so with two reasons in mind. Of course, yes, first, we want to remember Jesus' first arrival, which is that day we celebrate on December 25th, the day he came into this world as a human being. We're pretty good at remembering that. But what we're not as good about is the second reason for Advent, which is to remind us to reflect on another event that's coming, Jesus' second arrival. In fact, if you're following on your notes there, Advent is also a time when we prepare for Jesus' second arrival. We prepare for the day Jesus promised that one day he will return as the conquering king and he will restore the world to what it was originally intended to be. That day will be a day of no more pain or persecution or war or fighting or sickness or disease or tears. I can't wait. And so in this series, we're simply asking the question this Christmas season, how do we wait well during the in-between of Jesus' two arrivals? Between his two comings, that's where we find ourselves right now. We're in between his first arrival and we're waiting expectantly for his second arrival. Well, last week, Pastor Brian showed us that one of the ways we wait well is that we wait with hope. We don't give up hope. We learned that hope is a confident expectation that as followers of Jesus, things will be restored. Today, I want to talk to you about another way we can wait well, and that's by preparing ourselves 
preparing ourselves for Christ's return. Or if you're following, let me ask it in this question. Here's what I want to do with you. How do we remain prepared as we wait for the world to change? That's what we're going to talk about today. At the first Christmas, God sent a messenger to prepare people for Jesus' arrival. His name was John. You probably know him better as John the Baptist. John was called by God to prepare people for Jesus' arrival. As a friend said to me this past week, John is sort of like the fullback for Jesus. If you don't know football, a fullback is somebody who goes ahead of the running back and they slam into people in order to create holes for the running back to run through. And I'm just going to tell you, that is a little bit like John. He's just like a fullback and he's going to slam into us a little bit this morning because his message is a message of urgent warning. Now, while there are certainly times during this time of year to talk about things like joy and hope, we did last week, there's also times for us to, as a church, sit back and hear a message about urgent warning. Just like you would want a doctor if if you had a disease that you could do something about, but if you don't do anything about it, it's going to lead you to death and even more sickness. You would want them to speak to you urgently. Well, in the same way, John is going to speak to us urgently. And just like the people in the first century, I think it's still an urgent message for us today. It's a message we desperately need to hear as we prepare for Christ's second arrival. So let me invite you to do what we do every week, which is to take your Bible, hopefully join us as we are going through the scriptures to Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. As you can see on the screen, if you don't have a Bible, we have black Bibles available underneath you there, and you can find that on page 784 of those black Bibles. Now, I don't do this every time I speak, uh, but what I would like to do is I'd like us to pray again as God opens up his word to us, because this is going to be a little bit more challenging message. So if you don't mind, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, as we listen to this urgent warning from John, from your word, I pray above all things that those of us in this room would hear it as a message of love. Your heart is not to warn us, to scold us. Your heart is to warn us so that we can see you and see life in a new way. Just as we would warn our kids if they were in danger, you warn us and we're grateful for that. So go before us now. May we focus upon you and on what you have to say for us as we prepare not only for this Christmas, but for your second coming as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to talk a little bit about who John was and what his importance was. Then I'm going to talk about his message, his urgent warning. And then I'm going to say, talk about how that can still apply to us as we wait for Christ's return. So let's talk a little bit about John. I'm going to have a start in verses 1 through 6, but I'm actually going to skip verse 2 for now. I promise we'll come back to it. But look at what verse 1 of Matthew 3 says. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Verse 3. This is he who was spoken of throughout the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Verse 4, John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. By the way, that's important because those were the same clothes that Elijah the prophet wore in the Old Testament and Matthew doesn't want us to miss the connection between John and Elijah here. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now let's pause here. 
You probably know today that whenever a celebrity makes an appearance, whether it be a politician, a Hollywood actor, an athlete, a famous musician, there is always an advanced team that goes ahead of them in order to prepare the way. There's venues to book, there's security people uh, to book, there's limousines, there's hotels. All these things need to be prepared in order for their visit to be a success. The more important the person, the more extensive the advance team. Well, look, this was true even in the first century, especially when the celebrity was the long-awaited Messiah. If you're on your notes, before Jesus' arrival, God sent an advance team to prepare the way. But this was a bit of a strange team. In fact, it was just one person, and he was a weird person at that. When I was a kid, I'd hear this story, and I just couldn't get past the locust and honey thing. But of course, the more you dig into the story, the more you see that John is more than just a strange guy with a message. Although I have thought recently, with our diet-crazed country, could I cash in on a locust and honey diet? I'm not sure if that would work. The appearance of John, though, was predicted, prophesied about hundreds of years before John was even born in the Old Testament. Most clearly, it's predicted in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which Matthew quotes there in verse 3 of our text, but also in the very last book of the Bible, the book of Malachi, there's two predictions about this prophet who would be like Elijah. In fact, I want you to see what Malachi says about John. The first one is in Malachi 3, verse 1, where it says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Does that sound familiar? Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And then listen, the very last words of the entire Old Testament say this. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the, the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Wow, what a way to end the Old Testament there. And after those words, listen to this, you might know this already, but did you know that there were 400 years without any message from God? 400 years with no prophet, 400 years from not hearing from the Lord, absolute silence for the people of Israel. During that time, you can read in history, the Israelites were defeated by the Romans. They were put under bondage. They became a shell of their former glory. So no wonder they're waiting. They're waiting for God to do something. They're waiting for their world to change. And then, out of nowhere, after 400 years of silence, God speaks again. And who does he send? He sends the prophet Elijah, also known as John, that Malachi predicted and he comes and he picks up God's message exactly where Malachi left it off. If you're on your notes, John is a prophet like Elijah with an urgent message, a message of warning. Now, interestingly, Jesus once said about John that he is the greatest man to be ever born of woman. Yet John would say about himself in verse 11 of our text that he's not even worthy to carry Jesus' sandals, which was something what a slave would do in those days. So I'm not even worthy to be this person's slave. Maybe that attitude is one of the reasons Jesus thought so highly of John. So that's John, but let's look at his urgent message now. In this passage, we see three things John wants to communicate to us and to the people in the first century as we prepare for Jesus' arrival. The first one is found in verse 2. I promised we'd go back to it. Here we are. I have it on your notes there. Would you read it out loud with me? It says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
This, by the way, is the exact same sermon that Jesus would preach the first time he shows up on the public scene. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, there's two things to understand in this mini-sermon. I want to talk about them. The first one is the word repent. Now, just be honest right now. When I say the word repent, what kind of feelings do you have right now? What comes to your mind? What comes to your heart? I'm not sure we always view this word in the most positive of ways, right? I think we think of it in terms of, I'm a bad person, and I need to feel bad about being bad. But honestly, it's so much more than that. There's so much more depth to it. There's so much more grace to it. If you're on your notes, to repent means an ongoing and complete change of thinking and lifestyle. It's an ongoing, it's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing and it's a complete change of the way we think and of the way we live. Think of it like a U-turn. When you're driving somewhere and you're trying to figure out how to get there and Siri messes it up for you, and you pass the destination you were intending, what do you have to do? You gotta make a 180. You gotta find a place where you can make a U-turn so you can get to the right destination. Well, the same thing is true in life, John tells us, Jesus tells us, we need to make a 180. We need to turn from the path that we were on and make a 180 and turn towards him in confession and in true repentance. D.A. Carson is a great New Testament scholar, and he explains repentance this way. You can follow on the screen. What is meant is not a merely intellectual change of mind or mere grief, still less doing penance, but a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action and including overtones of grief, which results in fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance, listen, presupposes that our lives are off course and we need to turn them around. Not everybody believes that. But it also points us in the direction of the Savior who alone is able to make atonement for our sins. And so listen, when you hear the word repent, it's more than just, I'm sorry. I feel bad about that. No, It's changing the way I think about the path I'm headed on in life, and then actually actions come alongside of that. Obedience come alongside of that. I'm walking a new way. That's repentance. While grief and sorrow are certainly a part of that, true repentance is fundamentally going to change the way we think and the way we act. More than anything, though, I hope whenever you hear the word repentance from now on, you see it as God's gift of grace to us. In fact, that's on your notes there. Repentance is a gift of God's grace to us. Why? Well, it's our chance. It's our chance to turn from the path that leads to death and destruction and turn to Jesus who will lead us on the path to true life and salvation. Interestingly, the authors of salvation always spoke of repentance in a positive way. I don't know what's happened today where we think of it more in a negative way. For example, notice what Paul writes in Romans 2:4. God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Do you think of it that way? If my child is running out on the street and a car is coming down the road, it's not the time to be like, um, you might want to be careful there. Uh, you're going to get in trouble. It's urgent. Turn. Turn, repent, come back, get on the right path. You're headed the wrong direction. Every day I drive here to work, I come down Woodside Road, and some of you know there's some railroad tracks right there, out there by our church. And you know, most of the time I escape the railroad. 
But every once in a while, those bright red lights are flashing, the little things come down, and I have to stop. What are they doing? They're warning me, and I got to be honest with you. Sometimes I'm really annoyed. Sometimes I'm angry about those warning signs. But then I sit back and think, you know what? I'm actually really glad they're there. They're an act of kindness. Otherwise, I'm going to be pummeled by a train. And in the same way, I think sometimes we get annoyed or angered by the message of repentance. But really, it's God's grace. It's God's grace to us. And it's a grace, I don't know about you, I need it every day. Every day, I can easily find myself walking down the wrong path. And so I need to say, I'm going to turn. I'm going to turn again today. I'm going to turn again today. Because the only path that leads to life is life with Jesus. Of course, the sign of this repentance was and still is baptism. That's what John was doing, right? This humble willingness to die to my old self, to say, you know what? That old way of life, that old way of thinking, I'm dying to that. That old way of living, I'm dying to that. And I'm going to be raised up into new life with Jesus Christ. A new way of thinking, a new way of living. I am going to enter into a covenant relationship with Jesus. Now listen, it's not baptism that makes a person right with God. John would say that. But it is the first act of obedience for a person who has truly turned their life around to Christ. It's saying to the whole world, I've changed my mind that the path I was going down is the wrong path. It was leading me to sin and to death and I am now submitting my life to Christ in obedience as my savior, yes, but also my Lord and King. Now the next question is why would it be so urgent for us to repent? Well, that's the second part of John's statement. He says, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, as much as I think the word repent has been misunderstood in the church today, I think the phrase the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God has been equally misunderstood. And the reason I think that is because when you hear that, when I hear that, when I read that in scripture, I immediately think of it as a noun. For example, the United Kingdom, right? It's a, it's a place, it's a noun. But when we start to recognize and realize, whenever we read the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, really what the authors of scripture are trying to get across is that it's a verb. It's a verb. If you're on your notes there, the kingdom is a verb that means the reign or rule of God. It's this ongoing reign and rule of God that Jesus ushered in at his first arrival, that we continue to usher in as his people today. Let me just encourage you, whenever you open up the Bible and you read the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, just substitute the reign of God, the rule of God, the ongoing reign and rule of God that Jesus ushered in. The kingdom is not just a place called heaven, though it is certainly a part of that. It's bigger than that. It's all around us even now. Why? Because Jesus came and ushered it in. And today, you know what our job is? If you're a follower of Jesus, our job is to continue to usher in the kingdom of heaven right here, right now, until the day it culminates in his victorious return as the king who will reign forever and ever. This, this right here, if you want to know, summarize Jesus' teaching right here, it's right here. Repent. Change your mind. For the kingdom of heaven is here now. If you're following on your notes, Jesus' message was follow me by submitting to my rule in your life. And for both John and Jesus, that requires repentance. 
both in our mind when we acknowledge our sin, but also in our actions as we begin to obey with the Holy Spirit's help, the words and the way of Jesus. When we start to say the scripture becomes my authority, and so I will live according to what it says, not according to what I think is right or culture thinks is right. As subjects of his kingdom, we then represent our king here on earth. Do you realize what a huge task that is? We are to be his ambassadors. We are to be his heralds. And so how do we do that? Well, we do it the same way Jesus did it. We heal the sick. We fight for justice. We preach good news of the forgiveness of sins. We lay down our lives for the sake of others, just like 175 of you did yesterday at that incredible event. Our lives begin to look more like Jesus' life. That's what repentance looks like. And that really leads to the second part of John's message. Look at 7 through 10, verses 7 through 10 with me now. Get ready for some Christmas cheer. And I'm joking. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow. Those are some pretty heavy words. I could only laugh this week. I was actually originally supposed to preach last week on hope, and I had to change. And so when I looked at the text I'm preaching on, I'm like, oh, good. You brood of vipers. Now, before we dismiss John's words here as just being too harsh, let's first get to the heart of what John is really trying to communicate here to prepare us for Christ's arrival. If you're on your notes, we prepare for Jesus' arrival when we produce fruit that is the natural result of true repentance. We produce fruit. Listen, all that really means is that if you've truly repented, if you've really turned to Christ, to Savior and King, your life will verify your belief. It will prove what you really believe. If you aren't producing fruit, John would say to us, Jesus would say to us, then you're not really my disciple. You're not really following me. I really like how the New Living Translation translated verse 8. I actually put it on your notes there. Let's read that together. It says, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turn to God. And if you just think this is John's message, I'll tell you, Jesus said the same thing many times. He says, by a person's fruit, you will truly know whether they are living under my rule and my reign. Honestly, this is simply an agricultural metaphor. Let's say you went out to plant an apple tree. What kind of fruit, this is going to be tough, I know, but what kind of fruit would you expect that that apple tree would produce in a few years? Good. Good. You're getting it. And in the same way, when we repent and turn to Christ, we dig our roots into his kingdom, we are going to produce fruit. What is fruit? What kind of fruit? The same fruit Jesus produced. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Things like caring for the least of these, the widows and the poor, fighting against injustices, healing the sick, giving our time and our money to kingdom purposes. But listen, here's the good news. This is where I got bogged down when I first came to Christ, when I first repented when I was young. These verses would often make me feel very anxious. How am I going to produce this kind of fruit? 
I thought I had to try really hard or it was going to come through willpower, but I got some more good news for you. Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, the only way we will produce this kind of fruit is when we abide in him. Think of it this way. He's the vine, we're the branches. Can a branch ever produce fruit out of willpower? I'm going to get some apples out of here. Absolutely not. How does a branch produce fruit? By being connected to the vine, by being connected to the roots. That is where all life comes from. So listen, our primary job as followers of Jesus is to abide in Jesus, to cultivate an ongoing, meaningful relationship with him through his word, through prayer, through spiritual disciplines. As we begin to do that, what you're going to notice is, well, I'm not as attracted to that thing anymore. I don't want to say that anymore, or I feel convicted about doing that or saying that now. That is the kind of natural fruit that will be produced when we repent. So why does John have such harsh language for the Pharisees and Sadducees here? Like, what is the deal with the brood of vipers comment? Which, by the way, Jesus would say the exact same thing to them in Matthew 12. Well, it's because just like the serpent in the Garden of Eden, these teachers are spreading poison to others. They don't believe they need to repent, nor that any Jewish person would need to repent and submit their lives to Jesus. Notice, they think they're fine because they are children of Abraham. And as children of Abraham, doesn't that guarantee them a place in God's kingdom? John's answer, Jesus' answer is no. You must also repent and submit to this Jesus Birthright is no guarantee of avoiding God's coming wrath, God's coming judgment. Think of it this way. If I told you, well, I grew up as a pastor's kid, which is true, that automatically qualifies me for the kingdom of God. What would you say to me? No. There had to be a day in my life where I recognized I too was walking down the wrong path and I need to make a 180, confess my sin to Jesus, and then follow him as Lord And that was true for everyone, and it's still true for everyone. So John's message is to these religious leaders, since you haven't repented, since you haven't seen Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, and acknowledged him in that way, why would you come to me for baptism? Abraham's not going to save you on that day. The axe is already to cut down every tree that does not produce fruit as the result of true repentance. I would call that an urgent warning, wouldn't you? Repent. For judgment is certain. And that's really the third part of John's message. As he prepares people for Christ's arrival, this is the most urgent part of his message. Look at verses 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Wow. This is a similar picture Jesus would use. It's a picture of a farmer gathering in his harvest and using a pitchfork to throw the wheat up into the air and let the wind separate the chaff from the wheat. All the chaff will be thrown in the unquenchable fire. Now that paints a very different picture of Jesus than is being painted today, doesn't it? We don't like this part of Jesus' message. But it's John's message. It's Jesus' message. If you're on your notes, be ready for the day when Jesus returns as judge. 
Jesus is going to come as a conquering king, and he will judge everyone in this world, every human being. And all those who have submitted to his reign and to his rule will be welcomed into his kingdom. But those who don't, they will face eternal punishment. This makes sense if you think about it, though. If you don't want anything to do with the king, why would you want anything to do with his kingdom? Now, it's true, good news, Jesus does not come as a judge on this occasion. Why did he come? Please don't miss this. He came to save us from judgment. That's why it's good news. The entire Bible is clear, though, including many of Jesus' teachings, which get ignored today. A final judgment for all people will occur when he comes a second time. And the only thing that will matter for us on that day is whether we turned, what does that mean? Repented, submitted our lives to his rule and to his reign, received the forgiveness of sin and serve him as king. That's why the message is so urgent for John. That's why it's still so urgent for us today. Now to us today, this does not sound like very good news. It's not very Christmassy, I can say that. But listen, good news will always have to have judgment in it. Good news always has to have judgment in it. Otherwise, if there's no judgment, it's just news. It's just news. There's nothing good about it. Without judgment, there was no purpose at all for Jesus to come and become a human being. Why did he come a human being? So that he could take our judgment, the judgment we deserved upon himself. We call this the great exchange. Jesus giving his life in exchange for your life. And when you recognize that, when you repent, when you turn from your way of life, friends, original sin is simply deciding, I want to be the God of my own life. That's what Adam and Eve did. That's what all of us do. But repentance is saying, I want him to be the God of my life. When we receive that, we look to the cross where Jesus said, then come to me. For I will give you life now and life, life everlasting. Deep down, I think we all understand this. This is judgment, this justice. We have a desire for it if we're honest. Just this week, unfortunately, I watched some of the news. You see more shootings, more murders. And I look at the people who did those and in my heart, because I am created in the image of a just God, I want justice. I want judgment, right judgment to be done for those people. So listen, John and Jesus aren't out here to put a damper on our fun. They just know like that doctor who's going to warn you, you better change or else we too have to change before Jesus returns because scripture says we all fall short. We all choose to be our own God. This is an ongoing daily battle for me. But don't miss it. That's why he came. That's what we celebrate on December 25th, isn't it? He knows I can't change on my own. I need him. And the reason he comes is because he wants nobody, nobody to miss out on his kingdom. So he gives himself in our place. You want to take a deep breath right now? That's John's message. Now, how John prepared people for Jesus' first arrival, I want to ask this question, how do we now prepare for Jesus' second arrival? Now, I'm not sure, honestly, the message is all that different today, even though we don't hear it very much. In fact, I've read some pastors say to other pastors, hey, don't preach on things like repentance or sin or judgment anymore. That's just going to offend people. There's no gospel. There is no gospel without understanding those things. So how do we prepare? 
How do you prepare for Jesus' return? If you're on your notes, excuse me, not yet. Number one, we prepare by repenting, which just means, listen to me, there was a time in your life where you recognized you were going down the wrong path. You were living a life of sin and disobedience, and you turned. You turned to Jesus to be your savior from that sin, and you said to him, I now will allow you to be Lord and King of my life on that day. On that day, you repented, and you started to see some small changes in your life. You started to produce fruit. You weren't as interested in those things. You didn't say those things. You notice things like, I love people more than I used to. I serve people more than I used to. Your life began to look more like him. Sometimes that's slow. Sometimes that's fast. How many of you recognize this guy? Who's that? Scrooge. What is the entire story of the Christmas story about? We love that story. But what is it about? It's about Scrooge repenting. By grace, Jacob Marley comes, who he used to work with as a ghost, and he shows Scrooge the past events of his life, the present events of his life, the future events of his life, and at the end of the Christmas story, we love it because Scrooge repents. He changes his life. In the same way, Jesus comes as Jacob Marley and says, change, and I'm gonna help you. I'm gonna do it for you. So let me ask you, has that happened for you? Maybe more, no more important question somebody could ever ask you than this question right here. Have I truly turned to Jesus as my King and Savior from sin? We talk a lot about presents at Christmas time, but here's some good news I have for you. You don't have to wait till December 25th to open this gift. You can do it right here, right now. You can say to Jesus Christ, I want you to be my savior. I want you to be my Lord. And he will welcome you into his kingdom now and forever. Praise his name. Of course, the reason the time is now is because we don't know when Jesus will return. Every once in a while, don't you love this? You'll hear some pastor proclaim, this is the day Jesus is going to return. That boggles my mind. I can't believe the audacity of that. You're essentially saying you know the Father's mind. Nobody knows the day of Jesus' return except for the Father. And so as we wait for the world to change, let's just be honest. It feels like it's dragging on a little bit. Any day now, Jesus, I'm tired of watching all this sin and destruction in this world, all this hatred. And I think John would say, I know it's a long time, but stay prepared. Stay vigilant. There's a story right at the end of Matthew, right before Jesus is arrested, where he warns his disciples of this very thing, this stay prepared thing. Just as Matthew started the whole gospel with preparing people for Jesus' first arrival, Jesus ends it with preparing us for his second arrival. In fact, I'm going to invite you to turn there. We have some time. Turn to Matthew 25 with me. If you still have your Bible open there, it shouldn't be that hard to find. Just turn to the right a little bit. We're going to start this parable in verse 1. This is a story Jesus tells about making sure we stay prepared. Matthew 25, verse 1 says, At that time, what time? 
the time when Jesus returns as judge and king, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. That's just describing a traditional Jewish wedding ceremony. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. Now pause, you cannot understand this parable unless you understand that oil was symbolic of good works or of fruit in keeping with repentance. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. Amen to that. And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Notice, all of them fell asleep, but five of them were still prepared. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come and meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. This is similar to what John said to the Pharisees and Sadducees, right? You can't rely on somebody else's repentance to save you, somebody else's fruit. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. And then Jesus says these words I have printed on your notes. Can we read them together? Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. We don't know. What we do know is that there is a day where Jesus will return, and there will be a final judgment. And those who reject Jesus as king will be rejected. Those who receive Jesus as king will be received in the party of all parties. Think of ourselves, I want you to think of ourselves now as like firefighters in between these times. What is a firefighter's job? To fight fires. The problem is they don't know when fires are going to happen. So a firefighter always has to be prepared. Even when a firefighter sleeps, they lay out their clothes so that if the alarm bell goes, they're ready. They're ready to get dressed. They're ready to go do their job. I've heard it my whole life. Jesus' return is close. The truth is, I don't know. I don't know if it's close or not, but I do know that I need to be prepared. And so if you're following, here's the question for us. Am I prepared and expectant for Jesus' return as judge? Last thing, and I promise this will be real quick, but I had to include this. Along with being prepared, did you know what else as God's people were to do? We're to prepare others for Jesus' second arrival. John's task was to prepare, notice, the way the way for Jesus' first arrival. And interestingly enough, do you know what the early church called themselves? The way. This is a direct connection to Isaiah 43, to Matthew 3, verse 3 here. I love this. I love that they now thought of themselves as God's advance team for Jesus' second arrival. And still today, this is what we, as God's people, are to be all about, preparing the way for others to enter the kingdom, which is available right here and right now, because God reigns and rules at all times. So we do that by being witnesses to a life that demonstrates to all people, this is the life, this is the path to abundance, this is the path to eternity. So turn, repent, and come to Jesus. 
Friends, you probably know this because we've been talking about it for the last five months, but this is our vision at Cherry Hills. We talk about it all the time, but listen, we want to see every generation giving themselves half-heartedly to Jesus. Wait. Fully. Fully to Jesus and his mission. So let me ask you as we close, am I preparing the way for Jesus' return for others? Are you viewing your everyday ordinary life as being on mission with him? If not, and you'd like to, well, we'd love for you to join us as imperfect as we are as people as we prepare the way for the day when the world will finally be changed. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you know I just confess to you it's hard to stand up here and speak messages like this. In my fear, I don't want to say these things, and yet, just like you would warn a child, you warn us because you love us. So like I prayed in the beginning, I pray even now as the heaviness of this urgent warning lays thick in this room, would you cut through that with your spirit, with a sense of love? Repentance is your gift to us, a gift of tremendous grace. It's an invitation to enter your kingdom and to help others do the same. Father, I'm aware that there are people in this room who have never done that. Some, just like the Pharisees and Sadducees, think it's religion that will save them, and yet there was never a time in their life where they truly repented of their sin and called upon you as King and Lord. So I know you're working even now, and if that's the case for someone, help them to know today could be the day of their salvation. All they need to do is confess, I've been my own God walking my own path. I confess that to you, Jesus, and I turn to you now as the only author of my salvation. I exchange my dead life for your new life, which was given to me on the cross and in your resurrection. By faith, I receive this gift. For those of us who have done that, this message still speaks to us. And so in these moments of silence, we don't wanna just be consumers of the word, get more information about the word. We wanna be transformed by the word. So we open ourselves, our hearts up to you, examine us, speak to us. Not only what do you want me to know about this, but what do you want me to do? We humble ourselves now before you in prayer. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.